I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So Europe just saw some of its hottest days ever this week. It's a warm one, guys. How are we all doing? It's a, it's a scorcher. That's wet sweat on my palms. Every crevice of my body is sweating, is dripping. Apparently it's going to be so hot this week, we could die. F***ing brilliant. Some people are making memes and TikToks to find the humor in all of this, but the heat is no joke because it's not just hot, it's deadly. In Spain, 17 fires are raging across the country and thousands are frantically fleeing their homes. Portugal reports more than 1,000 deaths from the heat. Reaching as far as the United Kingdom, which has recorded a temperature of just over 40 degrees Celsius for the first time since records began. This heat wave has taken a lot of governments by surprise, but scientists in recent years have been saying that extreme weather events like this one are only going to become more common. It could be a once every 10 to 15 year event made 10 times more likely thanks to climate change. But even as leaders are scrambling to respond yet again to a problem caused by climate change, Europe is in the middle of an energy crisis and they're looking to coal and more gas as solutions. And if Europe is having such a hard time dealing with this, what does that mean for the rest of the world? This week on the show, I'm talking to Zia Weiza, a climate reporter with Politico Europe, about what we've seen this week and what it tells us about summers to come. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. So Zia, people all across Europe have been describing this heat wave as just hell. And you're in Brussels. What does it look like where you are? What's been your experience of this heat wave so far? Yeah, so in Brussels, we had two days of really intense heat, which peaked on Tuesday at about 38 degrees Celsius. And Brussels just isn't built for that heat. So it just, you know, you could really feel it. It's a city, um, quite an old city, that's been built over centuries for much cooler temperatures. So um, the buildings here, we don't really tend to have air conditioning, right? Um, I'm lucky enough that my office is air conditioned, but that's not a given. A lot of houses, they're built to keep heat in because, you know, the concern here and the further north you go in Europe is keeping heat in. In the metro um, this morning, yesterday morning, it was so hot. It was not air conditioned at all. It's just not built for it. How do you think your experience in Belgium, because I haven't really seen Belgium in the news as much as other places, but how do you think your experience in Belgium compares to that and other countries that are going through this right now? I think there's a bit of a difference in a sense of like the further south you go in Europe, the worse it gets. What we're seeing, especially in Portugal and Spain, is obviously much more dramatic, uh, where large parts of the country are just on fire. So in Belgium, we've been quite lucky that even though there's been a wildfire warning issued, um, we've we've not seen anything dramatic. Um, but even in London yesterday, like parts of like I think the outskirts of London were on fire. 
The London Fire Brigade has just declared a major incident in response to a huge surge in fires across the capital today. This is critical. Uh, the Mayor of London saying don't have barbecues on grass or on balconies. Don't leave broken bottles or glass on the grass. It can start fires. Dispose of cigarettes safely and report a fire as soon as you see one. It's not just the South, but because obviously it is hotter in Southern Europe, and because it's been hotter for longer and because there's sort of a cumulative effect there also with a long-standing drought, um, we're seeing much more dramatic effects there. So we've been seeing wildfires raging all over the continent from Portugal to Turkey. Record-breaking temperatures are fueling wildfires burning out of control across huge swathes of France, Greece, Portugal, Spain and Italy. In Canada, where I am, we've been talking about them a lot recently because we've had these crazy wildfire seasons that are more intense and they're linked to these hotter and drier conditions. But how unusual is this for Europe? So obviously there's been wildfires before in Europe, but um, this year uh, is shaping up to be quite dramatic. Spain particularly so, but many, many countries are seeing wildfires um, on a scale and frequency that is outside even the average of the last 10 years, quite early on in the year as well. And in areas where perhaps if you don't live in Europe, you don't really associate with wildfires. So uh, Eastern Germany is a good example. That's been an area really badly affected. And they've had wildfires uh, that, you know, forced evacuations of some villages, I think, in May and April. Dry, hot conditions started quite early on this year in Europe. And what kind of damage have we seen from these wildfires so far? So forests being destroyed, wildlife reserves, obviously a lot of um, habitats. Um, In Spain, um, there's been a particular reserve that's quite well known for being a habitat for wolves that's been really, really badly burned. Visiting affected areas in Extremadura, Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez said climate change was to blame for the devastation. I want to say that evidently climate change kills. It kills people, kills our ecosystem and biodiversity. But also some houses, including on the outskirts of London, I think like a dozen houses burned down on Tuesday and fields as well are catching fire. So um, there's also an impact on harvests and people have to be evacuated. In southern France, I think within the space of a couple of days, 20,000 people had to be evacuated. There is no vacationing here. It's, it's everybody takes to their cars and they've just got to flee, take their stuff, grab and run uh, because it is so dangerous. In Greece today, some houses burned down outside of Athens. Wildfires also ablaze in Greece. Close to 500 firefighters have been deployed to tackle the fires and help with evacuations. What we're seeing in Europe right now, do you think this is a sign of the new normal? Is this what summers are going to look like moving forward? Yeah, I mean, science does tell us that um, heat waves will become more intense and more frequent uh, with every tenth of a degree of global warming. Um, And in a way, that almost means that this isn't a new normal because this is the world at 1.2 degrees, right? The Paris Agreement puts a 1.5 degree limit So what we're seeing now isn't even sort of like the most optimistic scenario by mid-century. What we've seen over the last few days is is quite extraordinary because, you know, the UK saw 40 degrees for the first time. 
temperatures in the UK are so hot that the runway at Luton Airport, one of London's popular airports, has actually melted because of the sun. Now there's chaos as lots of flights are being cancelled and many people crossing their fingers hoping that their flight isn't cancelled. The Iberian Peninsula is on fire, like rivers are drying out. Um, the images and reports are really, really dramatic. And it's really scary to think that this is something that we're going to see more and more often. But that's what science tells us. Just going back to how people are experiencing the heat, you mentioned that a lot of places in Europe don't have air conditioning. I was kind of shocked when I read that only 3% of homes in the UK have air conditioning. How are people staying cool without AC? Well, it's a bit of a question of how you live, how you work, because, um, and that's sort of when we get into a bit of a social divide, also a geographical divide, but a social divide in terms of like, do you work inside or do you work outside? Um, do you work in an air-conditioned office or do you maybe drive a bus that doesn't have air conditioning? Um, if you imagine that you're, for example, a construction worker, which is not a very well-paid job in uh, you know many parts of Europe, uh, you probably live in an area of a town that is quite hot. There's studies that show that, for example, social housing tends to be in areas that trap heat in Europe. Um, so you're waking up and it's warm. You may be going to work on a bus uh, that's not air conditioned because you know you don't have a nice air conditioned car. And then you're working out in the heat all day and then you're returning to a very hot home. So it's very, very difficult for some people to cool down. Prepare yourself for a sleepless night. It is likely to be the hottest on record. Now, a lot of the focus in the heat wave is understandably on the daytime high, but there's growing evidence that it's overnight temperatures that are more closely tied to deaths. We spoke to some gig workers yesterday as well, for example, um, who are you know, cycling in this heat. And they said, oh, sometimes you know, we go into the supermarket in the freezer section just to cool down a bit. So people are having to come up with ways to stay cool. And I've also seen governments having to take steps that they haven't really had to take before. Uh, in London, for example, they wrapped this pedestrian bridge, the Hammersmith Bridge, in tinfoil to stop it from overheating. They're telling people to avoid traveling by rail. A cross-party committee has come out today to say that they're worried about things like buckling railroads or melting roads. Network Rail had asked people to travel only if absolutely necessary. There were some cancellations and speed restrictions along many lines. Hospitals are cancelling surgeries to cope with what's expected to be an influx of heat-related cases. But these all seem kind of like stopgap solutions, and they signal that these governments were really caught off guard here. Is that fair, do you think? I think that's absolutely fair to say. Preparedness for heat in Europe is pretty patchy. Again, further south in Europe, where they're more used uh, to heat, um, they are a little bit better prepared. France experienced a really deadly heat wave in 2003 that um, ended up with the government enacting um, a heat action plan. But over in Germany, most municipalities have no heat action plan. They don't even know who the vulnerable people are in the area that they need to protect. Also, as you suggested, I think it's that awareness is maybe not there yet, right? Mm -hmm. That heat isn't just a fun day at the beach, maybe, which is something in Northern Europe. I think you think of like a hot summer day and you're like, oh, let's go to the beach and, you know, have a gin tonic at the beach. Yeah, I saw these TikToks making fun of 
British people in the heat and it was people kind of like reenacting the progression um, that we've seen over the course of the heat wave. So at first they're like, oh, this is better than Spain. Babe, have you seen the weather for this week? Oh my God, how nice is this? Oh, let's call Janice and see if she wants to come over for a barbecue. I just love a barbecue. And then over the course of a few days, they realize that no, this is not fun. I'm so hot. No, I do not want another barbecue. Oh, it just needs to rain. It's dangerous once it gets to certain temperature. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a disaster, potentially. The thing is, we've seen this coming for a long time. Climate scientists have been warning about more intense, more frequent heat waves for years because of climate change. So do you think that this is the first time a lot of people are registering how serious this is? I think especially in Northern Europe, um, you might well be right that it is, yeah, that we're seeing an attitude shift about seeing heat as a potential threat. I do think authorities probably will notice in a few days also how severe this heat wave was in health terms, because when we talk about the danger of heat, we talk about excess mortality through heat stroke, exhaustion, and those figures won't be available for quite some time. So we have some figures already in, in Southern Europe, which again is much more used to these heat waves and therefore also is, is counting the impact um, a lot faster and is communicating it a lot faster. The head of Portugal's health authority told Reuters that 1,063 excess deaths due to the heat wave were recorded from July 7th through the 18th. Carlos Antunes, a researcher at Lisbon University's Faculty of Sciences, said the data showed the elderly were most likely to die due to heat waves. But I think the full extent won't be clear for quite some time. And perhaps if we see those figures, it might serve as a bit of a wake-up call. Is there anything these governments could have done to adapt to this kind of extreme heat? What are the solutions long-term to adapt to these changing conditions? So obviously it's like a huge task. I mean, there's things that could have been done instantly to protect people, even like one week ago when we saw the predictions for how high the temperatures would get, like adjusting workers' shifts, for example, when they have to work outside. In Madrid, a street cleaner died. Um, He collapsed from heat stroke in the middle of an afternoon shift when the asphalt, I think, registered more than 40 degrees and was unbearably hot. He was working in polyester clothing. The cleaning companies, the unions, after another workout had a heat stroke, finally sat down and said, from this and this temperature, we're going to scrap afternoon shifts. You know, like, these are measures that really don't need that much preparation. But then obviously there's the bigger preparation in terms of how do you prepare, for example, hospitals uh, for uh, heat waves, Uh, workplaces, of course. But yes, homes, cooling obviously needs electricity, like it creates greater energy demand. And right now we're trying to lower our energy demand because we're trying to conserve gas and also lower emissions. Um, So that's something that needs to be thought about as well, that if we need to start putting AC in homes uh, in France and in Germany and in Belgium, then we also need much, much more renewable energy than we're currently producing or even hoping to produce. So these are challenges on a massive scale. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. 
Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. So this heat wave, which experts agree is caused by climate change, it's happening in the middle of an energy crisis in Europe. So the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which pumps gas from Russia to Europe, was shut down for 10 days for maintenance. And politicians were worried that Russia wouldn't turn it back on as a way of getting leverage in the war in Ukraine. And it is back up now, but it's still not running at full capacity. Things are still pretty uncertain with winter coming up. And All these countries that have committed to meeting certain targets in the fight against climate change when it comes to carbon emissions, they've been doing things that seem a bit counterproductive to reaching those goals to deal with this immediate threat of a gas shortage. Can you talk about some of what we're seeing? Yeah, Europe's very worried about running out of gas this winter, right? So now there's all these measures being taken. For example, um, many, many countries are uh, reactivating coal plants that they'd switched off um, to generate electricity from coal, uh, which obviously far more polluting than gas. Austria is preparing to reopen this coal-fired power station. Closed in 2020, it could be brought back into service to cope with the risk of Russian gas supplies being cut due to the war in Ukraine and the sanctions imposed by the European Union. We're seeing some dueling messages, basically. We're seeing leaders saying we need to meet our climate targets, we need to reduce emissions, but we need to keep the lights on. And that's reasonable, right? I mean, you don't want people to freeze to death in the winter in their homes. Like, it, it, that is a genuine, genuine risk. Right. Um, but there's no denying that um, reactivating coal plants does have a climate impact. The real risk is anything that's called a lock-in effect. So decisions taken now that might lead us to burn fossil fuels for far longer than we would if we hadn't taken those decisions. That's, for example, if we build infrastructure for fossil fuels, so more gas pipelines, more LNG terminals, or if we explore for additional fossil fuels, more gas, more oil, which some European leaders are calling for, like the European Union is encouraging Norway, for example, to drill for oil and gas uh, in the Arctic, which it previously wasn't so keen on. On a leadership level, I think the main thing we're seeing right now is a bit of like an attention shift where climate change is taking a bit of a backseat in terms of attention. This is something that people have been talking about, especially since the start of the war in Ukraine, the fight against climate change taking a backseat because of the short-term crisis. But how much of a setback do you think what we're seeing right now is in, in that fight? Like, are we regressing? I think it depends a lot on these big decisions that I mentioned. Europe is pushing ahead with emissions reduction. There's a big legislative package moving uh, through the European institutions that is progressing at sort of like quite a, you know, rapid pace. But yeah, the big question is, do we take these decisions to explore for more gas? Um, You know, the UN and the International Energy Agency say we shouldn't be exploring for any more gas if we want to hit net zero by mid-century. So those are some of the decisions that will be really, really key to watch. So if we can just zoom out a little bit and look at what's happening in Europe right now in a more global context, just a couple of months ago, India and Pakistan were dealing with 
of heat wave that lasted for weeks. An extreme heat wave has gripped India and Pakistan with no relief in sight. South Asia is dealing with annual furnace-like temperatures. Millions are sweltering in the heat and frequent water and power shortages are the new normal. Since then, researchers have said that climate change made that heat wave 30 times more likely to happen. And I'm wondering if things are this bad in Europe in terms of preparation, how much worse off will people be in countries like India and Pakistan and in the global south? Right. I mean, climate change doesn't hit everyone equally, right? And it can be observed within Europe, as we said, but also between continents among countries. Europe is very wealthy. It has resources that other countries don't. So if Europe's not adapting well, that's quite worrying because it does have the resources to do so. When we talk about preparedness and and adaptation, there's usually where we talk about limits to adaptation. In other parts of the world, there are just hard limits in a sense of like, you know, if sea levels rise, island nations will really, really struggle to adapt. But we also talk about soft limits and that's when Technically, you could adapt, but perhaps the resources aren't there. Um, That's something that's becoming more and more of a talking point as well in international climate negotiations. There is a conversation happening right now about these big emitting countries paying a form of reparations to countries in the global south that haven't done as much to contribute to climate change, but they're now facing the consequences of it head on. And I understand that this is going to be a big topic at COP27, which is coming up in November. Do you think the kind of extreme weather events we're seeing now in Europe are going to impact that conversation? Because now Europe is worried about this in their own backyard. I think some of these really uh, devastating events we've seen in Europe has at least maybe created some awareness about the impact of climate change Uh, and also the cost, like the financial cost of climate change. Last year, almost a year ago to date, um, you know, Belgium, the Netherlands and Germany lost 200 people to flooding. And in Germany alone, I think the damages for that flooding were like, you know, in the tens of billions um, from that single event. And now imagine for like a country with a much, much smaller GDP, which has to deal with damages like that. So maybe it's creating some awareness, but that loss and damage, as, as that is called, that um, the, the reparations discussion is called in, in sort of the climate jargon, is a politically super sensitive debate. The question around compensation is a question of, of liability, right? It, it goes beyond just helping make sure that these countries can adapt. It drives at a question of why should a country that hasn't contributed that much to global warming, you know, like an island nation that hasn't emitted that much, why does it need to bear the full cost? It's a super sensitive debate because for rich countries, they don't want to accept any liability because they're worried about limitless liability because obviously the damages could be limitless. So... Given everything that we've talked about, you know, that it feels like we're taking a few steps back maybe in this uh, fight against climate change, even while getting a taste of what could be ahead and, you know, how horrifying it is as someone who covers climate change. And this is a bit of a cheesy question, but what's giving you hope right now? I do think that there is a rapidly growing awareness 
I think even if you've like in the UK compared sort of like some of the newspaper front pages from like Sunday where it was illustrating every report about the temperatures with beachgoers and, and ice cream and uh, to uh, this morning where the front pages were covered in pictures with fires. The big question is always what effect is this going to have on politics because ultimately that will determine how much can we limit climate change, what political decisions do we take in this decade. But for that, you do need bigger awareness to build pressure on politics. And perhaps if there's any positive effect, which feels weird to say from these really, really terrible events, is that it drives home to people that, you know, this is real, this is getting worse, and something really, really needs to happen now to address it. Zia, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So like I mentioned earlier, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline is back up and gas is flowing through it, which means that at least for now, Europe's avoided the nightmare scenario that German leaders were worried about last week of a complete cutoff from Russian gas. But the amount of gas being delivered was still way below the pipeline's capacity, like it was before the scheduled pause. And European countries are still bracing for the worst as the war in Ukraine continues. On Wednesday, the European Commission proposed that member countries cut their gas use by 15% over the coming months. And before I let you go, another quick update on a story we covered last week. On Wednesday, Sri Lanka's parliament elected the country's prime minister and acting president, Ranul Wickremesinghe, as the next president. Wickremesinghe has been the prime minister six times since the early 1990s, and a lot of Sri Lankans see him as being part of the political establishment that's brought the country to the point of economic collapse. Last week, protesters stormed his office and set his residence on fire, and some have vowed to keep fighting to get him out. Wednesday's vote means he'll be the president until the term ends in 2024, and he'll be able to appoint a new prime minister. All right, that's all for this week. You've been listening to Nothing is Foreign. Our producer is Ashley Mack. Our sound designer is Yvette Sin. And our showrunner is Joyta Shangupta. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer and Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode and you want to help new listeners find the show, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.